Hello, everyone. We have an amazing show for you this week. First off is the Inflation Reduction Act. How big of an impact will it have on global temperatures? And the team jumps up to Oregon to talk about some bolts coming out of a blade route uh, and the blade uh, coming off to the ground uh, on one of PGE's sites up there. And finally, we head to Norway, where there is a new startup making a vertical axis wind turbine for offshore that has some interesting design features that we'll talk about. I'm Alan Hall, and I'm here with my good friends, Rosemary Barnes and Joel Saxon. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Hey guys, the, the Biden administration has made a lot of claims about the Inflation Reduction Act. And Michael Schellenberger, who is a basically environmentalist, uh, but he also is an engineer and he writes a lot about the environmental changes that are happening and, and what we can do about it and sort of the cost reward side of the equation. So he had an article he put out and, and it was talking about the effect of the Inflation Reduction Act on temperatures. Uh, and is it really going to make that much difference? And the article is, is interesting. You know, I, I, I can't validate everything that Michael says in his article. But let me give you a, a pieces of it. Uh, so the U.S. is saying it's going to reduce carbon emissions in, by 2030, around uh, 40% below 2005 levels. That's, I think that's true. Uh, it's just less than the 50% that the Biden administration has been talking about. So they kind of gave themselves a haircut on reaching the 50% point. And the U.S. has substantially reduced emissions by using natural gas. And so we were already on a pathway to get to lower emissions just by converting over, stopping coal, using more natural gas would have been the pathway. So if we didn't even, if we didn't pass a law, we would have already been at sort of 30% of those levels. So it would have, we've been knocked down by 30%, which is most of the way to 40%. And with this new law, they're figuring that it, Michael's saying that's going to add another 7%. So instead of 30%, we're going to 37%. And we're going to lower the temperature down in Fahrenheit by like one one-thousandth of a degree Fahrenheit by the end of the century. So for $300 plus $400 billion, we're going to make one one-thousandth of a degree change. And also on sea levels, aren't going to change that much based on the predictions you put it into the model, the UN model. And spit out the numbers and it doesn't really make that much difference. So it's interesting how the administration is talking about this Inflation Reduction Act having a big impact on CO2 reductions, which it will in terms of relative to the United States. This is sort of the rosemary effect, right? You can always decrease, but what's the effect? And the effect is almost nothing. It's tiny. I was shockingly low. And rosemary, I know when we were, we've talked about this about a week ago, actually, of what some of the biggest impacts are. It doesn't seem like for 300 and – well, it's actually – the actual cost is $369 billion. It doesn't seem like there's going to be a lot of big changes in CO2 and we're going to, or not going to change the environment all that much. Does that make sense to you? Well, to me, I don't – I think it's kind of beside the point if you try and calculate the actual temperature reduction of – I mean, first, any one country's effort, but second, yeah, any one specific program. What I think is cool about a lot of the – aspects of this um, this program is that it's going to you know provide support for these early 
industries, I guess. So, you know, when you look at technology adoption curves, it, it always starts out really gradual sure. at first and then ramps up. And there's so much learning that needs to be done in this kind of gradual adoption um, phase. And in that early part as well, the business case isn't usually that compelling for, you know, a lot of mainstream or large companies to get interested in it. So, I think that this is going to help accelerate the, the way through that gradual part and get us closer to the really, you know, steep part of the adoption curve. So, um, yeah, I mean, an example would be with EV charging where at, at first it's really hard to, um, you know, for a company to make money off EV charges because there's not that many um, electric vehicles on the road yet and so they're not used that much. But you need a certain number of charges before it becomes, you know, convenient enough experience that people uh, in the mainstream are going to want to swap over. Um, so I think that, you know, you provide early support and then you can get over that threshold to where it becomes a really attractive technology choice between the clean one and the, you know, incumbent dirty one and that you can really, you know, fast forward. And I think when you see the big, um, you know, emissions reductions, the big percentages and, you know, that I guess for a country as big as the US, that will translate to some real, uh, you know, noticeable degrees difference or percentages of a degree difference um, to the climate. That's going to happen when the commercial aspect of it is is there and it doesn't need the government support anymore. So, yeah, I would never really expect that a government is just going to pay for for emissions reduction. I think that that's kind of like, I don't know, early 2000s kind of thinking and it, <laughs> it didn't really get us anywhere because it's just, <laughs> you know, as as you've noted, it's so expensive for every, you know, 0.01 of a degree reduction comes with this immense um, immense bill for a government that's just trying to brute force their way into an emissions reduction. So I think it has to work like this. Right. And, um, yeah, I think it's I, I think that it has the potential to do something meaningful, even if, you add up the degrees um, that will be reduced from the program doesn't sound very impressive, but, you know, think about the effect in 10 years' time when there's, you know, a lot more companies that are, um, you know, making money off clean products um, so because they're just better than the, the dirty ones. I think that, yeah, that's the real impact. And, Joel, you've been across the United States quite a bit, and we, me personally, we just drove across the United States from Massachusetts to California and the United States is, is immense. And so unless you've made that journey, you don't really realize how much energy the United States uses. And in particular, we were paying attention kind of like on some of Rosemary's trips of the number of wind turbines, where they're located, where are the substations, where are the big transmission lines across the United States, where are the, the energy producing sites, natural gas burning sites in a lot of cases. There's just so much infrastructure if you want to change that over. And back to Rosemary's point, if, you, if everybody, if you haven't gone to Rosemary's uh, Engineering with Rosie and listened to the discussion about charging sites for electric vehicles and how big of a, a problem that is in, in Europe and even in Australia, and I'll give you the United States too, Joel, it doesn't seem like there's $370 billion is going to make a, a drop in the bucket. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, we're just so massive. Right? Because there's so much to do, I think if, if we look at the Infle Inflation Reduction Act as like this, this end-all, be-all, fix-it tool, that's not what it is. If we look at it more like a catalyst, right? If this thing is a catalyst to jumpstart some innovation, to jumpstart some uh, people throwing money at different things to to get up and running. Now, like Rosemary is saying, uh, you know, it might 
with the PTC extensions and things like that, like it will get more development in place and we'll be able to get further down the line towards, you know, reducing, you know, these 40% goals and then, you know, 37% in reality of, as this article states, right. this, this catalyst will get us towards those things. But I think I, I like the idea as well of thinking maybe uh, the United States on the world stage can, can be looked at as, you know, we're not normally looked at as the people starting the green energy revolution. Um, it, it, but maybe this can do some of that. Maybe we can set some examples of, hey, we're this is what's going on, right? The, the point, you know, the, mm-hmm. the one sure. one thousandth of a degree change. It's better than looking at some of the other stats that say three degrees of increase. So we're, you know, right. we're That's we're, true. That's true. we're one country in the world throwing, um, a, 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 you know, a large sum of money, four hundred billion dollars, at a problem as a catalyst, and maybe. Some other countries will follow suit. Some other things will happen. Uh, some innovation here will spur some innovation somewhere else. Uh, so it's it's a group effort. It's not just the U.S. trying to fix the world problem, too. You know. And I think you actually touched on Michael Schellenberger's ultimate point in that article, which was if he actually took some of that money and put it into R and D, mm-hmm. it'd be a better use than trying to implement at this stage. And I think Rosemary is saying the same thing: of we're well, still early. So. We still need to propagate out things. Do you not think so? Because no, oh, I'll, I'll give, I'll give I think you the example, we have right? The technologies, it's the implementation and getting the business cases mm. workable that then leads to the scale that you need to to go up. You know, R&D, it's uh, always, you know, 20 years in the future that you see something that might be able to be commercialized. Um, but the bulk of emissions reduction can happen using technologies that are well well known to us. And it's just, you know, like needing to get over that little little hump. I mean, you would have seen it with wind energy, right? Like in two, from 2000 to 2010, it, things moved slowly because it was more expensive. It was, um, you know, it was more of a pain. And then as soon as it got to the point where actually wind energy is a great way to make money, then you have all sorts of developers rushing in, bringing in experience from other fields. Um, and, you know, you can't get projects in the ground fast enough because, um, it just every, everybody wants a piece of that pie, and so we just need to see the same thing replicated with all of the other clean energy technologies. Now, you know, we've done so, it with wind and with with solar. So, what if we shove some R and D funds into some projects that were like TRL seven, TRL eight, instead of TRL three? Right. You know, like we've been, you know, Alan, you you shared some stuff today. We were talking about in the group about some different algae projects and things like that. Like, there's some of those technologies yeah. that are like ah, they've been kind of being played with for 10, 15, 20 years, and now they're almost commercialized. It'd be nice to get some of those over 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 that last hurdle and and in the field. Yeah, I think that's appropriate, especially where um, you know some technologies are just never going to be cheaper than the polluting uh, emitting um, you know version yeah. of yeah. it. Um, and so I think that th- those, yeah, I mean, support the um, the development because there's no nothing in it for a private company to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, so a mix of that and then plus stuff that's at, you know, eight or nine and just needs that last little bit to get to scale and yeah. commercial rollout. I-, I think that that would be a, a good mix. So. Yeah, right. I think that's what mm-hmm. ARP like uh, the ARPA E projects are a lot. A lot of them are like that. They want to see some stuff that's in the seven, seven and eight. Uh, for those who don't know, TRL uh, technology readiness level. It's the U.S. government's scale of where an innovation is at to to hit the field. One through yeah. nine. One is an idea. Nine is commercially scaled, making money, yeah. ideally. And, and back to Rosemary's point, 
the production tax credit probably had more to do with deployment of wind than anything else. I think we're going to see that again versus some of these other th- projects they're trying to take on. If you really, if you want to push wind, I think that's great. I, it seems like you do it cheaper. And I think the arguments that a lot of the states are using right now is saying, well, we've been putting money into wind for 20 odd years. Why do we keep doing it? And the answer is obvious, right? Because we want to try to, you know, wean ourselves off foreign subsidies, foreign oil, all, all the, the stuff, right? All the above, right? Is it worth it? Don't know. I don't know if there's a good answer. Hmm. I don't think that wind needs a lot more subsidies in most places. I mean, Australia didn't have any kind of production tax credit. There's some renewable energy certificates, um, and I guess they still exist. But uh, the real incentive is just that you can you can make a lot of money from uh, a good wind project in Australia, and it's it really does stand on its own two feet. Definitely, I mean, solar as well. I keep on talking about wind because that's you know obviously all of us. Uh, I'm yeah. more involved in that part, but I, yeah. Well, sure, sure. I think I know, and you see a lot of. We drove across the United States. We we're listening to a lot of different things. We had a lot of seat time. One of the, I, I think there's a, just a big concern of we don't have any wind manufacturers in the states necessarily. I would count GE as sort of in the states and solar, pretty much none, right? So if we really want to stand those things up, we got to get on it. And in that part, I think makes sense. If you want to stand up wind energy companies that could manufacture turbines in the States, that would be something that, that needs urgency. We don't need to have that 10 years from now. We need that in the next 24 months, I would say, if we're really serious. Now, it's going to be hard. I think it's going to be hard to tell if, if the Inflation Reduction Act is going to be making a dent in 24 months. If you were to signpost, Alan, one thing, one, one thought – of why the U.S. doesn't have a wind turbine manufacturer, what would you say it is? China and the it's availability com- of, of inex- yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cost. It's it's cost. Yeah. And the the Danish have the same problem. The Germans have the same problem. Uh, it's cost, right? Everything gets outsourced. Even a lot of the Vestas wind turbine components and Siemens Gamesa wind turbine components are not in country. They're they're made outside. Right. And I think right. the supply chain to China is a is a big draw to lower the cost down because the operators want lower cost turbines. Yeah. Sure. Why not? Yeah. I've seen, I've seen an article today that just said something about onshoring a lot more manufacturing. Like there's more new manufacturing facilities being built in the U S today than there has been in the last many years. So maybe that, um, maybe that'll come from a you know, policy changes and things. And maybe we see someone, something start up or someone onshore, Bring, at least bring the factories back over here uh, and start start those back up. Yeah, I think the Biden administration is going to have trouble if they don't have physical production yeah. on the ground in visible spots. Mm-hmm. It's going to bounce back on them in a hard way. And, and they, they're promoting that. I think that's what they're trying to get to, but they have to make it reality, and which is the hardest part. As engineers, we all know we can all make computer simulations or whatever we want to, but building a factory and delivering wind turbines out of it is extremely difficult. Now, the one thing, the one feather in the cap they've got is the Jones Act is sitting out there. So at least some of this money is going into vessels that are being built here at the coastal port communities, you know, but other than that. Well, that's a a really good question, Joel. Do we need a Jones Act for wind turbines? Um, 
competitiveness again, I think it just, it would be nice. It would be really nice. It'd be nice to have a Jones Act for car parts. But but now your solar, solar panels. Yeah. yeah, but now your fifty thousand dollar car will turn into a hundred thousand dollar car if every component has to be made in the U.S. So yeah. it's a global economy, global supply chain thing. Yeah, it would be it would be fantastic if they have it. I would love if the government, if this three hundred seventy billion dollars, if some, if they said if you started a renewable energy manufacturing facility, design, manufacture, build facility. Uh, and you got a massive tax break. I think that would be fantastic to bring it on shore, just for energy security purposes. Mm. And ultimately, I think that's what matters, right? We we don't need a a wind turbine spurt that doesn't have lasting legs to it. Yeah, yeah. If we're going to do this and put this effort into it and, and spend mm-hmm. hundreds of billions of dollars in the effort, we ought to have something that goes on more than a couple of years, ideally. No, the investment might be better there and in, into distributed power generation, photovoltaics, right? Uh, yeah. All solar right. power because they're, it's just easier to deploy. Maybe we need to bring that more onshore. Get the latest on wind industry news, business, and technology sent straight to you every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech Newsletter at weatherguardwind.com slash news. All right, Rosemary, GE wind turbine dropped a blade out in Oregon. Now, you, you would say if that happened in Texas, I don't know if anybody would really care all that much. But in <laughs> Oregon, for whatever reason, it's a huge deal. So as the story goes, uh, a, a blade fell off or was thrust into the air and then landed in a field without injuring anybody. Well, it could have injured somebody if somebody was standing right there at 2 a.m. in the morning watching the wind turbine. They could have been hit by a flying blade. The news articles you see are very inflammatory. The language is so suspect, it makes you wonder uh, what the agenda is. But because clearly the agenda is we don't like wind, we don't like PGE, which is a power provider and which has operating a little over 200 wind turbines out in Oregon. And we want all this stuff to stop because uh, for whatever reason, I'm guessing Oregon, which is one of the most liberal places on the planet, uh, doesn't think wind energy is cool. And, and, Depends where it was in Oregon. <laughs> yeah, right. On, if it was the, against the, the coast, it's one. If it's in the middle, it's a different story. That's true. If it's on the eastern side, not cool, right? Wind, wind is not cool. On the western side, wind is cool. At least you think it would be. Mm-hmm. But the, the issue with this particular wind turbine is the bolts started falling out of the blade. And some of them were on the ground. A, a sales – or not a salesperson, but a delivery person was up that way and was maybe taking a lunch break, what it sounded like and saw some bolts laying on the ground. And he took a picture of one, he, he picked one of them up and kept them as a souvenir, as a paperweight, and that was it. And then two days later, boom, the, the blade flies off. Shocker. And the local community and regulators are super concerned about it. Like, I guess that makes sense. And PGE pretty much stopped everything, shutting down all those wind turbines, a little over 200 wind turbines, and then checking the, the blade bolt torque. And they, they kept four shut down for a little while longer. I assume they, they found some issues with those. And I had talked to Echobolt uh, a couple of months ago off behind the scenes there. And when I, I asked those guys, uh, talked to Pete there, and what they said about bolts was, I said, what are the critical bolts joints in a wind turbine? Because their company 
measures bolt torque or bolt tightness. And he said, because I thought it was foundation bolts. No, 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 no. It's blade bolts. It's definitely blade bolts because of this, the coefficient of thermal expansion. Fiberglass doesn't move. The bolt moves. Mm-hmm. Things tend to loosen up over time. And I thought, oh, yeah, that makes obvious sense. Come on, right? So, Rosemary, on those – because you're our blade expert. Does, this, does that whole joint make sense where you put these big metal bolts and, and you tap it into fiberglass and that's what's holding the blade onto the hub? Does, does that design make sense? Uh, it's a tricky, it's a really tricky design um, aspect. I, I don't think, think they usually tapped in, uh, at least I haven't seen it done that way. You would usually um, mold them in there. Um, so, you know, you, you put some okay. some material around it and then as you're, um, as you're curing the the blade shell, you, you cure it with with bolts in there, or with you know some some component in there that the bolts are going to uh, thread into. Um, yeah, okay. because I mean, if you're trying to tap into the um, into the fiberglass, that's that's tricky because you, you're going to be cutting as you you know as you cut out the the path for the the right. thread, you're going to be slicing through the fibers and you're going to be just transferring purely through the, um, the resin, which, uh, is not, you know, not ideal, but I mean, it's not ideal anyway. They're two totally different, different materials with different right. properties, not just the, the thermal, um, coefficient of thermal expansion is different. So yeah, the, the bolts probably, um, you know, their volume changes more than the blades with temperature changes, then also the you know the stiffness is uh, different between the two materials, so you're gonna get stress concentrations around it. Um, yeah, it's just it's a really challenging feature, and every manufacturer has come up with a slightly different way to do it. And when there are there are issues from time to time, probably with every manufacturer, um, and when there's issues with the yeah with with something you know related to the way that the blade is bolted into the the hub those are big big problems that the you know companies need to take seriously but in this particular case it doesn't sound to me so much like a design problem as like a maintenance problem i mean if you read through the article there's Mm. been you know a history of poor maintenance and things being covered up and Turbines continuing to operate, even though there's been, you know, more than one blade bolt failure. I mean, I know they'll be designed with um, safety margins. So, you know, in theory, you can have, um, you know, one or several bolts could break and the, the design is still safe. But you do have to start thinking, why did this one blade um, bolt break? And are other ones going to also break? And it doesn't look like they really you know, displayed the necessary level of curiosity and um, didn't, you know, make sure that the maintenance was done uh, adequately to ensure that this sort of thing couldn't happen. Joel, is that something that is regularly inspected? Yeah. The, the bolt so, tightness on well, the blades? Well, I'll give you, there's just a couple ways to look at it as well. So think about, um, you, you, we were talking earlier about you building some Ikea furniture. When you put together the corner, the right. corners of some of your Ikea furniture, there's a hole that you drop a barrel nut into, and then you screw in this way. And that barrel nut goes like this and pinches it together. That's the design that's replicated in a lot of root bolts. There's a, like a void in the, in around where they, the, where you would put a threaded bolt in. And then Mm -hmm. you, you cast the blade, you do everything. And then you drop that in there and then come in the other way with a threaded rod, thread the rod into the, the, the barrel nut, and then you epoxy it in. So now you have 
it's setting against all the um basically all the huge plies uh and materials at the end of the root bolt so sometimes it, when they start to loosen up that they start to kind of vibrate shimmy a little bit and that th that bolt can can like wiggle inside of that cavity and then you get a crack in the gel coat so you can see that a lot of times on external inspections mm. right like the ge the the ge 15s that's how they were built and if you look at them you can see that sometimes if the turbine's 10 15 years old if that gel coat is cracked and a little bit of water has gotten into where that bolt is and it sometimes they rust and it looks like little rust pockets i mean not, so, let me take that back yeah. ge i said ge i meant um Suzlons. Suzlons are built like that. So they'll have like a little bit of like rust crack that is around right at the root. And you can see it from an external drone image from the outside. That's even without going up and tensioning bolts and all that stuff. Like you can catch it on normal inspection if that's the way it happens. But then once those get loose in there, they start shimmying and moving around and shaking. And then you start loosening the whole blade up, you know? The bolt image that was shown with this article looked like the bolts were rusty. I thought that's, you know, up in Oregon, it's wet all the time. It's probably a little bit salty. What what are the chances that the bolts are rusting? Probably pretty high. Well, it's the same. Is it's this more of? It's the exact same thing you're talking about, dude. Coefficient of thermal expansion, right? So if if the steel is moving at one rate yeah. and the fiberglass isn't and it's galvanized, well, it's great that it was galvanized when it went in, but it's going to eventually rub that galvanization right off that bolt. It's not it, the reason that you put metal in concrete is because the coefficient of thermal expansion is the same or basically the same in concrete and steel yeah. it's not the same in a composite blade root end and steel so the they don't they don't play well together so it's something you got to keep an eye on definitely we catch it uh, I've, I've seen the guys on, on my team catch it in reprocessing inspections where they say hey this was missed look at the root bolts you have to go do an investigation there and sometimes uh, a rope crew will need to go up there grind the gel coat off so they can look actually look at the problem and see because in that pocket the actual root sometimes can crack of the of the composite rather than the bolt bolt itself, and then you got to do a deep repair to fix that. Yeah, is that even fixable? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, at some level, it's not right. But if you catch it early enough, you can, and you can, <laughs> right? Yeah, okay. you can catch those things in in vibration alarms as well. Because if they start getting goofy, and because what ends up happening sometimes mm. is the pit, then if one side starts to loosen up of the root bolts and then they start the, the the tip angle gets a little bit weird on one blade, and then the whole thing starts to vibrate, and you can catch it beforehand. Sometimes that's what we were the other week talking about mm -hmm. the guys at AC eight eighty three doing the pitch alignments and, and whatnot. You can catch it with that. All right? Yeah. True. Yeah. Rosemary, has there been more recent design changes that get rid of some of these failure modes at the bolted connection? Uh, I mean, there's several ways to do it, and I actually haven't worked so much with that IKEA bolt um like design um mm -hmm. th there's a few other other ways and any of them all of them can have problems but i really think that this is a cautionary tale for why you need to spend the money on maintenance after you've bought your wind farm because yeah. if you read through um you know the the list of issues with this particular wind farm uh it's got way more um maintenance issues than comparable wind farms i think it mentions like three times or something <laughs> the the level mm -hmm. And also the power production has declined a lot over the last few years as well. So it just suggests to me that, I mean, I have worked with um, with owners, with operators that didn't think that they should have to spend any money on maintenance. And wind, wind turbines do need maintenance. I mean, it's just a, you know, it's just a 
a feature of the the technology. They they need yeah. maintenance, and if you don't do it, then you know that's a great way to save money for five years. Maybe it's a great way to save money for ten years. But these ones are at fifteen years now, and they're talking about replacing them. And it really sounds to me like it's because they just haven't haven't invested in preventative maintenance and yeah, you just, you need to, if you've got a wind, if you're on a wind farm, you need to maintain it. That's, that's the lesson that we can draw from this. I think. Dale sticking with Rosemary there. And because we run into this when we do root cause analysis cases a lot is the, the asset owner has entrusted the, a lot of times the OEM under a full service agreement. And they're like, we pay them to do the full service agreement. We shouldn't have these issues. You can see in this case that, yes, they did that, but if it still vests with the full service agreement, which is what it sounds like, uh, they should have, you know, once in a while had someone else stick their nose in there, maybe do an inspection campaign on their own, just to make sure that they're QCing their full service agreement. What do you think about yeah. these OEM service yeah. agreements, Joel? Because that's something that is a real feature of uh, Australia, um, or pretty much every developer Everywhere. here is um, is using OEM service agreements. And I know I only get brought into these cases when there's a problem. So maybe I have a pessimistic view of it, but I see nothing Agreed. but Agreed. but difficulties Agreed. when, you know, the, the owners of these assets are kept totally separate from what's going on with their very, very expensive asset. They don't have information about what's going on. They don't have the right to yep. monitor it. They don't, you, uh, it's, it's a weird system. And I, I would feel very uncomfortable comfortable if I owned a wind farm and, and didn't have the right yeah. to know what was going on with my assets. Right with like, uh, I believe the term is nepotism. <laughs> like if you have, if you, it's the same thing when we were, when we were in the oil field, if you had an inspector working for you that worked for you inspecting their stuff, like what's the, what is the, what is the advantage of them you know, blowing a whistle or anything? There isn't one, right? Um, uh, a good a good thought here. I, I worked for, in the civil engineering world in uh, Illinois for a while. Illinois has a very tough hierarchy on how public works projects are done. So in each public public works project, if the state of Illinois was doing it, they would have a construction company. That construction company could not also do the drainage works. It had to be a different one, so that they couldn't cover up each other's mistakes. And then the third party had to be an independent consulting engineering firm because that independent consulting engineering firm would act as the bird dog for the state and make sure that everybody was doing the things they were supposed to be doing. So it's the same thing that you say here. You have someone selling you the product and then they're also going to maintain it. And in the language, they have stuff in there that says, you don't get rights to our inspections. You you can't put people up tower. Like some weird, there's some weird stuff in there, right? Um, but some of it gets gives this like feeling of this warm and fuzzy feeling to the owner like well this is great all we have to do is get permits to build this thing they'll build it they'll manufacture it they'll maintain it and we collect the money well i would yeah. urge you to read deeper i think they think it's a way that they can avoid needing any um technical expertise on their on their team because yep. i know in australia you know we don't have a lot of engineers that are experienced in, you know, designing, manufacturing, servicing wind turbines. It's, it's new, all of that. I mean, service actually is probably probably wrong. We've got good good service industry now. Um, but so the the developers and the um, operators, well, the operators they choose the OEMs to do that because they don't have that expertise and they don't 
They don't want to have to get it. It's hard to come by. And so you end up with these agreements and their only protection really is, you know, an availability guarantee, um, you know, an uptime guarantee. And so the the person, the company with a service agreement, all they've got to do is make sure that, you know, you don't drop down below that minimum level of, of uptime. And if there's a problem that is, you know, going to have less downtime than that, they've got no incentive to fix it. Um, but it's the the owner that is going to see you know reduced <laughs> reduced checks coming in because there's you know there's problems um, that could have been fixed faster if uh, if someone had an incentive to but yeah just uh, yeah. I don't know it seems all a big mess to me. I'd like to see the industry or the market respond uh, heavier with independent full service agreement contract like Do- uh, Deutsche Wind Technique right they do it. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see mm-hmm. more opters you know because uh, you. Know, I reside in the blade space. So you start, you, there's a lot of blade repair companies out there. There's every corner of the globe has them, but there's not a whole lot of companies capable of taking on a full service, uh, arrangement. I know like, like I said, Deutsche Wind Technique comes to mind because uh, they're the biggest one I can think of right now. Uh, but I'd like to see more of those that when, when the warranty end runs out on a turbine, that's when their full service agreement ends with the OEM and they can switch to uh, someone else because there might be better language, better contract, better legalities. What, so when does the government step in? When does the state step in and start checking up on these sites? Oh, for sure. If there's safety issues. Isn't that inevitable? Yeah. I mean, in this, oh, yeah. this yeah, you think OSHA. Yeah, but OSHA only is only involved if there's been – a person injured typically yeah or or something that could have seriously injured yeah but i mean in this particular you've place, got you've got maybe. times uh i know some some roofers in minneapolis that osha literally came through and fined every roofer in an area as inspectors came and looked and saw they weren't using the proper tie-offs right mm-hmm. and they were just like doom, 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 writing up Shocked. writing up fines you know <laughs> yeah exactly um but but for things like this that such as something like this that's such high so highly visible uh and it's a hot button yeah. topic you would think that i mean that's the only agency i could think that i would have any power there anyways you know occupational safety and health administration well it, it we're in california at the minute and california's going through a little bit what they call the heat wave where it's mid 90s maybe it reaches 100 it's not texas hot it's california hot and they're telling people to turn off air conditioners and to not charge your EV. That all makes sense to me. But if you have a variable like wind turbines going down because of poor maintenance, the state has to step in politically. They have to step in and at least throw some, some bodies at it because you can't, you can't lose them right now. We walk back to the thing we've been talking about for the last three weeks is the 42% guarantee from the government for dominion. Yeah. That's such a mess. Well, you, you get into the same thing. It's Rosemary's so against time. it, but I think she's right. Yeah. No, you know, Rosemary's totally right about that, right? She's totally right. But I, I see the other half of it, which is, well, it forces everybody to keep the, the wind turbines at peak performance all the time, mm. which adds costs, which is why they're pushing back. It's this 
continual saves, yin and yang of it's, costs. And- it saves money over the, the long run. I don't think it's, it's the um, financial incentives are, are there to keep your asset running as long as possible. So I think these guys have just made poor, yeah. poor decisions um, because they're looking now at replacing be- their wind turbines halfway through their lifetime. I mean, that's yeah. that's not a prudent financial but- decision to save money on, on maintenance. So that's why I called it a cautionary tale and I hope that people will <laughs> – We'll take that precaution and say, oh, okay, we've got to invest in maintenance. Otherwise, we'll be stung in a couple of years. But isn't the production tax credit driving a bunch of that? Like after 10 years, the production tax credits go away. So the value of your assets go away. So therefore, you would logically, if I'm an accountant sitting on a spreadsheet (laughs) – Say, I won't want to put as much money into these maintenance projects with these wind turbines that are not PTC ready. So that isn't that yeah. what happens? I think that I think the data backs that up. Go over to the next column on the sheet and have their insurance company hit them with a massive penalty. <laughs> then then it makes more sense to maintain them better, right? So let the market correct it, but the market right. has yeah. to correct it. So if the insurance if the insurance company now that they've thrown a blade for doing something dumb can penalize them or can make their premiums go up the next year because they've failed to be a prudent operator and maintain their, their assets properly, uh, make, them, make them burn on insurance. Isn't, isn't it a weird, a weird economic dynamic yeah. that we're in at the moment? If the PTC drops at 10 years, which is, I think that's right, so 10 or 13, 10 sticks in my head. At 10 years, your, your asset value goes way down, more incentive to put new instruments up. That's good. The OEMs love that. So from a PTC standpoint, they're there for 10 years. I'm going to refresh them every 10 years. Cool, right? But in the meantime, there are all these consequences. It's, it's, it's the rosemary, what are the consequence bit? The consequence of doing that, that PTC, the way that it's structured today is the maintenance goes away. And then you have problems. So is there, is there a good middle ground? Either one of you. Is there a good middle ground that would get rid of this maintenance issue and keep these turbines turning, but also make the OEMs happy. Yeah, it's all going to come down, like you said, Alan, to a, what does it look like on the balance sheet? So the middle middle ground has to be a yeah. A, that's what I get. It has to, to be guys. a struck balance right. between O and M costs, insurance costs, finance costs, and production costs. I I love Rosemary's answers because it's the engineering answer. Like, look, you idiots, you need to be keeping your wind turbines up and running. That's the obvious answer. Hello, right? And uh, us engineers who drive cars for twenty five years because we take care of them. Yeah, that's exactly what we do. And it, sure, that's just, that's just how sort of we operate, right? But that is not how the accountants operate. The accountants try to maximize profits every quarter, every year. And they have a different input, and I think sometimes us engineers get on our High horse, is there me included? It's not just rosemary. I'm saying my horse. Is there an? Ad- and it, we, but we we create these weird problems. Is there an advantage to? Uh, okay, say so think, ERCOT, MISO, all these, all the different operate the the grid operators. Is there a, a, an incentive that the grid operators could put out to if they had uptime, right? Like its own its own private yeah, PTC right. type thing that says like if you're if you say you can put 100 megawatts into the grid. Uh, if you can get me fifty percent uptime, we'll give you this. If you can get me forty-five, you get this, right. da, 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 and have it. I don't know. I, right? See, that's and everybody's going to want it too, right? The Rosemary's point. Yeah. Well, yeah. To Rosemary's point, though, I think the capacity factor with Dominion is a big problem. But at the same point, if the PTC were tied to capacity factor, some of this may go away. 
by itself. It's just say, hey, we're going to have a capacity factor. If you want PTC, you have to meet the capacity factor. And we will extend your PTC if your capacity factor But how does, I don't know about the- Does that get, the, you, get you where you want to go? I don't know about these tax credits, but how do they work? Is it that they supply, they, they pay you based on every megawatt hour that you produce or- yep. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, there flat, there yeah, is an incentive rate. to um, you know have good availability because you get more megawatt hours um, produced. And I know in Australia, in Europe at the moment, I don't know what's going on with um, power prices in the US, but there is already an immensely strong <laughs> strong incentive for everyone to keep their assets generating because yeah. prices are so high that um, you know wind farms and solar farms that are able to generate they don't have increased fuel costs like all the fossil fuel um, producers or fossil fuel generators do and so they're just making massive profits um, at the moment if they can keep their availability up so it's certainly not true that there's no incentives in the system I know every electricity market is different. But is this even a widespread problem? I don't feel like we hear about that many blades yes. falling off turbines. Is is it is that really Joel, an yeah. issue? It's it's not just this yeah. issue. It's all <laughs> issues with blades. All issues with maintaining these things. They just it's a it's like a a cultural issue, like a cultural in the wind industry that like a lot of times rosemary. And this is a <laughs> I've I've seen this many times, um, and I can understand why it happens. It's just very frustrating to see like. Wind Farm X will have 50 turbines and they'll say, we've got 200 grand to put towards the blades this year. Okay. So you start working, you start working out there, you're fixing blades. And then all of a sudden it runs into 190,000 uh, on the PO and they're like, Hey, you got 10 grand left demo. And you're like, we've got some cat four and cat five damages over here that like, if you don't stop these things are going to, those blades are going to rip apart. And they're like, sorry, only 200 grand in the budget. See you later. And they just leave them run. That's a regular occurrence all across the U.S. Mm -hmm. Like they just don't uh, put any kind of love. There's no – I don't know any operator that has a whole lot of TLC for their blades specifically because, of course, that's what I work in. <laughs> yeah. Everybody love your blades a little bit better. Yeah. This, this problem would Tuck them in away. at night. Give them a pillow and a nice blanket. <laughs> Yeah, well, it takes Better a lot to make a wind turbine one. blade. So that makes me sad right. yeah. people aren't loving them after they leave the factory. Yeah. <laughs> Because they're made with love. Yeah, they're made with they're made, they're made, made with, with love and a lot of people's, you know, personal hand touch on them. So, yeah, look, look after your wind turbines. Oh, well, more to come. Let's, <laughs> I, I think we're going to have to keep track of this as it goes through. We're going to see some big changes in the next couple of months. So we will keep following this news story. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit WeatherGuardWind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. Well, there's a Norway-based firm called Worldwide Wind that is developing a, a new type of floating vertical axis wind turbine uh, that is uniquely different than other ones I've seen, Rosemary. It's, it's actually, actually two sets of vertical axis uh, wind turbines stacked on top of one another, and they, they counter-rotate probably to keep the moment of inertia down. Uh, and it's obviously, it's still on paper. We haven't seen anything yet. And the whole thing, the whole wind turbine, if you can envision this, is at an angle. It's got a 45-degree angle. So it's not truly vertical. It's like, I would call it a slanted axis wind turbine. Maybe I ought to patent that or trademark that. It's a slanted axis wind turbine. And 
It seems interesting because uh, one part, one of the turbines is the rotor and the other part's the stator. So they're kind of rotating. So the whole assembly itself makes a generator. It makes sense on paper. Now, there's been a ton of criticisms about this on LinkedIn. So this popped up a couple of weeks ago. I sat on it because I thought this is crazy. No one's got even bat an eye at this. And all of a sudden, on come the LinkedIn uh, experts to say, that's crazy. That's the worst wind turbine I've ever seen. What are you talking about? And I, I don't think it's horribly bad. I think it's just another idea. When we were talking earlier about having some new ideas in wind, Rosemary, why is this a good idea or, or a so-so idea? Well, I think the idea of um, vertical axis wind turbines for floating offshore definitely has some merit. And so I'll put this in the category of interesting idea to investigate further. Um, it, it's kind of obvious why if you look at a normal horizontal axis wind turbine, you've got a really tall tower and all of the weight is at the top of that tower and, you know, it just doesn't look like something that wants to float, right? Whereas if you take a vertical axis wind turbine, the generator can be on the bottom and you have most of the weight at, at the bottom. So, you know, it keeps the centre of gravity low, makes it easier to make a floating structure for it. So that's, um, you know, that's that's true for any kind of vertical axis wind turbine design. This particular one, it's got the counter-rotating thing, um, so uh, perhaps that's going to make their mooring system easier because, you know, you'll end up cancelling out some talks. I haven't done any, you know, mm. <laughs> free body diagram of it to to kind of think that through properly, but that's at least what they're stating. Um, they haven't made one yet. Um, I think they've got, like, if you look at their website way down the bottom, they've got a photo of a small scale one, which is two of those um, that called Savonius type, like a drag type wind turbine, which is just basically like a cup that gets pushed around by the the wind that, you know, you see them on um, weather stations and all sorts of places that need like a really durable, low efficiency generator. Um, so I think they've made one of those at least. I did see in another article that the founder has once made a, vertical axis wind turbine looks very different to the one that they're promoting for their floating offshore design but it seems he has made something and then they've got some nice you know computer generated images of, of whole wind farms of these things uh, but it doesn't look like they've even made a prototype an onshore prototype of, of one so um, you know it gives you an idea of where they're at but if you go through their list of benefits it just reads like any other kind of revolutionary new wind turbine design they all i've made a whole video about this actually with paul guype who has a a whole website windworks that oh, tracks yeah. um i think it's wind um yeah. hyphen works.org um and it tracks uh all of the new wind and he's been doing it for decades so you can see like the rise and fall of you know, dozens of examples like this. Um, and I had him come on my uh, my YouTube channel to talk about his list of red flags that he sees, you know, over and over again in these, you know, new designs. Um, so, yeah, I, so some of the some of the benefits that they're saying are, are real benefits associated with vertical axis wind turbines and some of them are just these myths that keep on coming back and back and because we don't actually see any industrial-sized um, vertical axis wind turbine farms or even individual turbines since, you know, the 90s, 
these these myths never get disproven because no one ever actually gets to the point of um you know build building a wind farm with these turbines. So maybe I'll just go through. I'm just on their website, so it's uh, worldwidewind.no. Um, and yeah, I'll look at some of their their claims and talk through those. So simple design, no nacelle, gear, calling, cooling, or yaw, and that the. Uh, I think all the the first ones, are, you know, that's that's very easy to have a simple design when it's just on paper. Um, no nacelle, yeah, sure. Um, and the yaw, that's one people talk about a lot with vertical axis wind turbines that, you, you know, they don't need to turn to face the wind direction, the, the you know, the omnidirectional. And that's true. But um, if you look up cost cost breakdown of a normal wind turbine, the yaw system is somewhere between like one and maybe maximum five percent at like the very upper upper limit. And it's right. not. I mean, it's not something that I see fail a lot. I don't know if um, Joel, you see a lot of yaw system failures. Motors every once in a while, but that's. Yeah. So I think this idea that they're omnidirectional, it's like, yeah, great. Like the your system is not a not a big problem. It's not a big cost. Like, who cares? Move on. Um and then reduced wake effect and increased turbine density. This is the one people keep on going on and on about for vertical axis wind turbines that you can pack them closer together. And it's similar to what we talked about last week with the um, you know, the turbulence, um turbulent wake right. that persists behind a normal wind turbine. And I mean that wake is there because you've taken energy out of the wind. So if a vertical axis wind turbine is taking energy out of the wind, then it's also going to have a, you know, reduced wind speeds behind it. That's just definitely, definitely going to happen. And um, yeah, this particular idea that you can pack vertical axis wind turbines closer together, it comes from one study that was done. Um, it's a desktop study. They did some two-dimensional CFD of a, a wind farm of three three different vertical axis wind turbines, and from a specific angle, <laughs> then that gave uh, a better performance than a right. uh, wind farm of horizontal axis wind turbines that are, you know, basically arranged in the least um, least efficient way. Um, it's an interesting result that should have led to somebody doing some wind tunnel tunnel tests, maybe some 3D analysis, maybe a few more wind turbines in their simulation, maybe a few different angles, uh, wind angles. Um, it gets repeated over and over and over again, like gospel truth, but there's it's it's nothing. It was actually it was an undergraduate student that led this study and you know found an interesting result, but it's. Um, it's the starting point for research to find out if it's an effect, not the basis for, you know, it's spawned about 50 startups, as, right. uh, startup companies, as far as I can see, just this, <laughs> this one undergrad student's, uh, you know, final year project. It's, um, that's kind of interesting to me that, that just keeps on coming up and up and up. <laughs> um, yeah, it's true. Yeah. What else about this? Well, Sorry. Does this, yeah. Well, let me let me let me throw the the ultimate question, which is the rosemary age of wind maturity. How long would this take to become reality? At and they're projecting a forty megawatt machine as early as twenty twenty nine. So let's just use that as the baseline. When did you think they would have a forty megawatt machine? I mean, honestly, never. I've, I I know a lot of. Um, designs vertical axis wind turbine designs that are, are looking a lot more promising for offshore um yeah for for floating offshore application 
There's some weird features about this particular one. They've got their generator underwater. Uh, I mean, that's such a such a self-handicap that they've given themselves. You know, you're trying to develop this radical new design and then you're going to put it in the water and then one of your main maintenance components is underwater. So then what, you're going to dive under under underwater to you're going to get scuba divers that are also wind turbine technicians to go under and maintain that are you gonna <laughs> have to haul these things out of the water tip it over Maybe, yeah. like uh, i don't understand the the maintenance um yeah and then just the normal thing that i isn't that the case though rosemary mm-hmm. I, I yeah i think you raise a lot of good questions right like some of the obvious ones like how do you maintain it and what happens if which is what vertical axis wind turbines have had trouble with yeah. for a long time. Horizontal axis wind turbines have gone through that that uh, you know, birthing pain and, and reached at least teenage <laughs> years in a sense of being able to being able to like consistently produce power. That's a really difficult thing to do. It's a lot harder than people would assume. Yeah. And when I, when you see anything that's happening within a decade at a forty megawatt level, you're like, whoa! I, if I put the you know, you know if I gave Vestas a couple billion dollars could could they do that maybe 40 megawatts is a big yeah issue. you could you can make a regular wind turbine 40 megawatts if you wanted to there's no like uh, engineering um you know law or physics law of physics that you're gonna gonna break you no so? you, you could you could do it um oh uh, y- yeah it, you could it it just Ooh. would be very expensive and it's actually um been trying <laughs> been trying to write a, a video script about that um the last last week about how how big wind turbines are going to get and you know all the scaling laws and um yeah you have this problem especially with the the blades well that, then yeah it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be how big well there isn't i, I don't think that there is uh, necessarily going to be a hard limit it's an economic limit it's oh. about at what point do you know things get stop well, that, getting that's cheaper a limit. Yeah, but we're already at the limit. You know, we're always we're always at the limit. Um, That's wind turbine um, manufacturer will design the turbine that they that can give the cheapest energy out because that's how you win projects. And so you know, it's been getting bigger because some of the considerations that uh, there's. uh, You have to we have to wait and, wait and see the, the video. But how, how big? But how basically, on? you know, things like the the generator, oh, okay. the power connections, the uh, installation, transport, all of that favors fewer big wind turbines. But then all the structural stuff, especially the blades mm-hmm. and the tower and a lot of other stuff, um, shafts and things that really favors keeping it small because you've got the square cube law. You heard of that? Uh, um, right. So yeah, as something yep. as you scale a wind turbine, its power output increases with the square of the diameter, but the weight of a lot of components like the blades um, increases with the cube of the diameter. So there's actually you know something to be said for keeping. Yes. If you were just worried about wind turbine blade weight, you'd have tiny tiny turbines everywhere. You could have a lot less blade materials involved. So. Yeah. What, what, That's the dino. Isn't that the dinosaur yeah. problem, though? Right? I mean, the dinosaurs only got so big just because the, the, they got so massive, the, the bone structures couldn't support it, right? So, it, it, are we at dinosaur level, brachiosaurus, altothorax levels of 
of wind turbines. No, are we there? The big not. giant ones. Are we, and are even we when there? you look at no. wind turbine blades, the mass of the blades has not been increasing with the cube of the diameter over the last few decades. It's only been increasing with just right. barely more than the square because yeah. we've made technology improvements, um, different materials, getting better at manufacturing, knowing more about exactly how strong the materials are so we have smaller safety factors because we're more confident of them all that sort of thing um so are you gonna are you gonna make me watch engineering with rosie to find the answer is that what's gonna happen to me here (laughs) see you in front of it with your eyelids like propped open with toothpicks (laughs) (laughs) so here's a here's a here's a a thought and a question they're unrelated right now but i'm just thinking about two years ago the 12 megawatt turbine was the biggest one like the vessels was putting a 12 megawatt out right now it's like, oh that was gonna be the biggest one yeah. right now ming yang has just put a 16 out so that's yeah, true. that's four megawatts of growth in two years on the biggest turbines and everybody's going to keep chasing that so what does that mean for 2029 in the horizontal access wind turbine space does that mean twenty? Two, well, we're going to have 24? to wait until Rosie puts it out on the yeah, web, right. on, the, on the YouTube <laughs> so, because we're, we're not going to get answers here. But you here, also evidently. get really so different Rosie, results more, for <laughs> onshore versus offshore because you've got totally different constraints. And then I think floating offshore yeah. is totally yeah, different design constra- design requirements and constraints again. And that's why like, I don't see vertical axis wind turbines having much effect onshore or for fixed bottom offshore. But for floating offshore, I think that, you know, the, um, the requirements are shaken up enough that I think that, I mean, if you were starting from scratch, if no wind turbine ever existed before and you needed to come up with a way of generating um, electricity from the wind offshore, deep, deep water offshore, you wouldn't, you wouldn't arrive at the horizontal axis, three blade upwind um, rotor design. I, I think that's clear. I mean, it doesn't mean that we won't end up with that for floating offshore because that is already so mature that maybe it is smaller increment to, you know, technology increment to just uh, develop a, a floating platform that would work for that. But I certainly think that there's a, a chance for vertical axis to, you know, get in. I personally would, you know, if I was um, had a startup company on vertical axis wind turbines, I would personally want to develop as much of it onshore as possible. And I never, ever see any of these startups doing that. They're always, they've got a paper design and then they immediately launch to putting a prototype in the water, which, I mean, you're going to be wanted, you're going to want to be very well funded <laughs> to do that because, I mean, just look to wave energy industry to see, a catalogue of, you know, probably tens of companies who have failed because they, uh, some off-the-shelf component that they used failed offshore, waiting for a weather window for maintenance, they ran out of money and they went bankrupt. You know, like that's just, that's just happens over and over and over again. And they, yeah, I don't know. I think that there's a lot of money around now for clean energy investment, um, and it seems like all you need is, you know, some sort of basic level SolidWorks modeling uh, rendering skills to be able to get millions, it seems. <laughs> to get some money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rosemary, for like taking taking this idea of this uh, counter-rotating uh, vertical axis turbine with a, a, a stator inside of it, doubling the power up theory, whatever. Have you ever seen someone take a horizontal axis wind turbine, three-bladed, and then put on the back of it, do the same concept and then a negatively pitched blade the back way. Yeah, they, they did that in the early days. Does, does anybody like, do that? 
in, in the 70s or 80s Did or 90s. Yeah, yeah, they did that. And you can get a bit more yeah. energy out, but not um, enough to, uh, you know, add the cost to it, basically. So uh, what Rosemary has announced today is she is actively saying that vertical axis wind turbines are worth looking at. For floating I can't offshore. believe I'm yeah. hearing this. Quite honestly. Oh, oh okay, right. <laughs> Let me rephrase it. Floating offshore vertical axis wind turbines are cool <laughs> and that they may be the future of offshore wind. And that's Rosemary's stamp of approval. I can't believe that actually happened today. Wow. So that opens up all kinds of designs that we wouldn't have otherwise seen. Just getting just getting an engineer who's a serious engineer who's been around the industry a long time, like Rosemary, to say there is a space for that. Is not, news. I don't have a lot of company. Most in engineers that say optimism. No. no, I'm not saying. No, no, no. I mean, I'm saying there's not a lot no, of other wind energy is, engineers, possible. mainstream wind energy engineers, who think, "Oh yeah, that's a great idea." And I think part of the reason is because when you you see you know a company like Worldwide Wind or uh, I don't know C12 is another one. There's there's quite a few um, floating offshore vertical axis wind turbine companies, and when you look at each one individually, you're like, oh, that looks like there's a lot of dumb aspects about that. But if you actually start from scratch and you're like, okay, we want floating offshore wind, how are we going to do it? I do think that there is something to be said for I like vertical axis wind and multi rotors as well. Those are the two things that I think it's worth investigating. But if you look at the companies that are doing them, you never, they're never, well, they're never full of, um, you know, people with a lot of experience and they seem to be making questionable decisions. And I think a lot of it is because you have to have these pretty pictures to get um, investment. Um, and so they jump straight ahead to the 40 megawatt version rather than, you know, make make some 500 kilowatt versions and install them on the land and, you know, prove that you know, most of their claims you can prove on, on land. You don't need to go offshore to, you know, prove that the counter-rotating thing works um, or that, yeah, you can, you know, get t- double the efficiency for the same land area from, you know, having an array of these these things. Um yeah, so I, I think that that's the reason why most people write write them off. I, I, Rosemary, I, I'm I'm getting a text from the SEC at the moment, Joel. It says, uh, <laughs> "Never listen to the investment advice of an engineer." That's actually good advice. <laughs> Thanks to the SEC for texting me because some of that did this sound like investing advice. I would say let's let's tone down you the think investment. It sounds like investment advice. advice? But Rosemary does give a lot of good engineering <laughs> advice. Yes, it sure does. What? There are some of these guys that are idiots. I don't say guys, but there's some of these companies that are idiots, and there's some of them that are pretty real because they 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 have a vertical axis wind turbine that may make sense on floating offshore. Question mm. is, which one, right? Oh well, then you need and to hire an I, engineer to help you figure I'm not that out. Ask because I, do not. <laughs> I'll, I'll put my hand well, up. Well, then you have to go to partalopeconsulting.com. <laughs> And hire yourself you're an engineer to take care yes. of those questions because clearly it looks like there, there's an uh, an opening in vertical axis wind turbines, which is quite honestly shocking. Rosemary, I never thought I'd say that, but that's that's cool, right? I mean, there's a there's a new space for engineers to pursue and to maybe make wind turbines even bigger and better than they are right now. That, that's always good. We'll take yeah. it. I don't like to instinctively rule out anything new. I think that that's, it's very easy to become cynical like that, but, um, you know, and say, oh, you know, we have something that works Rosemary. and everything new is dumb. Rosemary, <laughs> come on. 
We've been around. We've known you for yeah. a long time now. Yes. When something new comes out, it, it does get the rosemary. Uh, mm, I don't know. It but most look new right ideas me. are bad. Silly I mean, most people, you know, most like, startups fail, and um, so yeah, you've got to somehow. That's true. Yeah, no, you've you got to somehow be able to cut through all the stupid ideas, but keep uh, open um, your mind open enough to be able to recognize yeah. when there is a reason why this could work um, this time. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. Be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you next week on the Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Oh,